You're watching The Sports Objective, the podcast for pirates. Wednesday night, and you know what that means, people. It's time for just another sports podcast here on the Sports Objective Podcasting Network. I am your host, Kyle from Lagrange Barber. Joined with joined, <laughs> Lord have mercy. We're off Good to a Lord. roaring start. Joined as always by Stevie Fly. Stevie, I'm not even going to give you a funny introduction about being from Virginia this week. I'm just going to go ahead straight to you, uh, Stevie. How you doing? I'm doing all right, buddy. How about you? I'm doing good. Evidently, I'm nervous because coach is with us. We, uh, yeah, well, we, we got a uh, we got longtime East Carolina offensive coordinator. You know, he was head coach at multiple places also. But everybody around him knows him as the OC, Mr. Doug Martin. Coach, how you doing? No, I'm doing great, guys. Good to be with you, Coach. Was that not the most awkward introduction you've ever had? In any <laughs> you've ever it's all good. Uh, I, uh, you know, we, we do these shows. We've been doing them for five years now. Um, there's a whole, the whole group, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but one of, one of, one of the guys you recruited to East Carolina as part of our team, uh, Matt, Matt Semenza. And, oh, is that uh, right? Matt Semenza. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Matt Meriton, Meriton, New Jersey. They sent me to New Jersey, the biggest redneck on the staff. They sent to New Jersey to go recruit. <laughs> yeah. He said that he said you recruited all those guys, him, Dan Gonzalez, uh, Scott Harley, all the Jersey well, guys. Yeah, sure did. Yeah. Yeah, so so Matt's part of our team, and you know, I, I we've been doing this for five years, but I normally don't host, so we we kind of do a different show each night during the football season. And this show was added this year with me and Stevie, and so I'm always used to being the co-host, the analyst, providing quick wit. The hosting thing, I got to get down. You're off to a good start. Well, I appreciate it. This is what episode five, Stevie six, something like that. Yeah, uh, I think it's five. I think it's five. So. So, coach, we'll uh, we'll we'll start with this. I, I know you uh, you came to East Carolina in '92, uh, Steve Logan's first year as head coach um, from um, was it East Tennessee State? It was, yeah, East Tennessee State. I was the offense coordinator there, and uh, Steve and I actually had a mutual friend, Bob Leahy. Bob was uh, on our staff at East Tennessee State, and Bob was the coach that got Steve started in coaching. Steve Logan was a graduate coach for Bob Leahy at Oklahoma State. And that was the connection. Ended up getting me the job with Steve. Okay, so you didn't know Steve prior to that. You just had a mutual a mutual coaching contact. You know, typical Steve Logan. So Bob recommends he hires me, and he hires me without an interview, just over the phone. <laughs> and when I land in Greenville for the first time, I get in the car. He said, "That's the toughest interview you ever had, right?" And I said, "Yeah, it was, it was pretty <laughs> tough." He said, "Well, if you screw this up, I'll fire you in a heartbeat." <laughs> so I said, "Okay." Wow. <laughs> And then 10 years later, I was the only staff, I was the only member of the staff that stayed there all 10 years. So Steve and I have been really close friends ever since. Well, you were tight ends coach when you first got here. Is that right? I started as tight end coach and special teams. And then I moved to be the wide receiver coach and special teams and then the offense coordinator. Yeah. You took over OC in, in 96. We'll skip ahead a little bit yeah. um, to uh, 96. You took over that year and uh, you, you, you stepped into a pretty good situation. You had a veteran offensive line. You had Marcus Crandall slinging the ball. You had Dan Gonzalez behind him. You had Scott Harley at running back. Yeah. Uh, Larry Shannon at wide receiver. 
Uh, you, you, uh, Todd Berry left you in a good situation. Man, I tell you, it was a great situation. And, uh, you know, we were, we were really at a peak at that time. A lot of it was because of Marcus, you know, Marcus is one of the best quarterbacks that I was ever around as far as being able to see the field, making plays, but man, did he have a great group of playmakers around him. That group of wide receivers, Mitch Galloway, Jason Nichols, Larry Shannon, uh, you know, I, I tried to recreate those guys and the mentality that those guys played with for years and years and years after I left East Carolina. It was hard because that was just a special group. What made them so special? Obviously, they were talented, but what, what beyond their obvious talent made them such a special group? You know what? They they were they remind me a lot of Julian Edelman who I had at Kent State. They just played with a chip on their oh, shoulder. Yeah. You know, they they those guys, boy, they I mean, all of them. None of them were really recruited. I mean, Larry Larry Shannon. The only uh, other offer he had was to play basketball at West Virginia Tech. Yeah. That was the only other offer he had. And so they were all like that. And, man, they were just tough, tough kids and uh, great to be around. In fact, Jason Nichols later on ended up being on my staff at Kent State. So we, we remain close to this day. Larry said he played hardball with Coach Logan, that uh, the Coach uh, said it was him and another receiver that was going to get the last scholarship. And <laughs> coach asked him, would he, would, he, would he walk on? He said, no, I'll take the scholarship and go play basketball at West Virginia Tech. <laughs> yes, Steve has a way of motivating recruits now. We had we had some great stories about recruiting. I, I took him on a home visit once, and he, he said to the young man, he said, well, who else are we competing with? And I think at that time at you know, Appalachia State was FCS, and and he said, well, Appalachia State. And he said, okay, we're done. He got up and walked right out of the house. So, you know, he, he, boy, that's one of the things that Steve was always looking for is kids that wanted to play big-time football. And if you even hinted that you didn't want to play big-time football, we were out. Yeah. I know uh, – well, and I really don't want to get into that, but you brought it up, so I will. Um, Coach seemed to not like recruiting as much towards the end of his time here when the whole BCS thing got into play, uh, it, it, it seemed like that from the outside. Is, is that, is that accurate, inaccurate? No, that's not, not really Kyle. You know what it's East Carolina at that time. And probably now, you know, you don't recruit as much as you evaluate, you know, you, you have to find the diamond in the rough guy, you know, you got to find the right guy. that's going to fit. Um, you know, we, at that time, especially we weren't able to just go out and beat people in recruiting. We didn't have, all the facilities that they have now, um, you know, so we had to go find guys that we just felt like were really good players that everybody else was overlooking. And it was hard. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of time, um, you know, and Steve was getting pulled in a lot of different directions at that time. You know, the administration yeah. at the university had changed at the presidential level. And that was really the stumbling block that we hit at the end there. Yeah, I know. I was, I was a huge fan of Steve Logan, still am. And, uh, hated, Same here. Hated, hated to see, uh, when that happened. And, you know, I, I saw it coming. I think we all did with when you, when you, when you had, um, you know, the chancellor, uh, I can't remember his name, the dude from Auburn. Yeah. Bill Muse. <laughs> yeah. Muse. And you, you had Hamrick here and it was just a diabolical. None of them got along. Logan, Hamrick, Muse. <laughs> so <it was> just... <laughs> well, I was there for 10 years, so I know where all the bodies are buried, but I, I, may, <laughs> I may tell the story when I'm done, when I'm checking out, but not until then. Yeah, no, no kidding. Well, we, hey, you saw how, how long you stayed here after Logan, uh, uh, was fired, but anyway, we'll uh, we'll, we'll talk about happier times. Um, so yeah, we, we talked about 96, the next year, 97, um, was a bit of a rebuilding year. You had Dan Gonzalez back, quarterback who played towards the end of 96 because of Marcus's injury. 
And then um, you, you had Harley back running the ball. You, you had some some talent at receiver. But we had a very young offensive line. And what I remember about that season, we started off, our, if I remember right, one and five. We beat Wake Forest mm-hmm. um, at uh, Dowdy Fickman. By the way, if anybody out there, I say it every time I talk about that game, I have been looking for a copy of that game on DVD or VHS for years. So if anybody has a copy of that 97 Wake Forest game, shoot it my way. But anyway, we were one and five. And struggling in office, could not run the ball. Uh, the offensive line seemed to be struggling with run blocking. And, and Coach Logan, you, know, you were the offensive coordinator. So it seemed like the, the second half of the season, Coach always liked to be kind of 50-50. Everybody thinks of Coach Logan as being a pass-heavy guy, but he really wasn't. He, we, we were always kind of balanced on offense. You would know that better than anybody. But it, it, the second half of that 97 season, we became really pass-heavy because the offensive line seemed to just be better at pass blocking than run blocking. Can you talk about that and, and the change, how, how you guys were able to change what you were doing offensively kind of midseason? Yeah, you know, that's you're right about that that synopsis of what happened. You know, we just offensively and offensive line, and we knew it had a new offensive line coach that year too, which made a big difference because the system that I learned from Steve and that I continue to run the rest of my career really to this day it's it's not a complicated system for the players, but for the coaches, there's a lot to it. And offensive line coach was a little bit slow to gather on to it at that time. And Steve ended up making a change at the offensive line uh, after that. We hired Steve Shankweiler back, which was a great move. And Shank got straightened out in the offensive line, got a lot better. But the system was good enough to where you didn't have to have players to fit your system. The system fit your players. And as soon as you figured out what the identity of your team was, you could plug in a different style. It's just like when Mark Crandall was a quarterback, we were a drop-back passing team, intermediate drop-back passing. We could just kill people because Marcus could see the whole field. You know, Danny Gonzalez didn't have the, the feet that Marcus did, but he could still do that intermediate game. And then when David Gerard came along, we had to change it all again. So it was just a matter of us finding identity, and, and that's hard. And it usually happens when you have a starting quarterback for a couple of years, that guy leaves, and then you got to develop a whole new identity again, mm-hmm. which is a little bit about what East Carolina is going through right now, I believe. So, yeah, like we said, the one five star, you 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 kind of adjust, alter what you're doing. You you, you go past heavy. Uh, was I'm assuming that was stuff you all you know you, you don't just change offense completely, like you said. You, you can kind of adjust what you were doing. So, I guess that was stuff you were already practicing. You just you just went more heavy with that stuff and less of the other yeah that, that was just a, a play calling game plan decision you know that we were just going to you know call more pass plays we we're just going to become more pass oriented and and a lot more drop back pass oriented than play action pass so um you know you you could like say you could tweak it as a play caller however you wanted to and that just ended up becoming who we were okay i i'm trying to remember specific games from that season i remember the Houston game comes to mind. Yeah. That Houston, the, that those those uh that near the end of the year, you started off when you started the winning streak was Memphis, Louisville, Houston, Cincinnati. Then we finished up with a loss at NC State. Yeah, that was a comeback against Louisville. I remember that game. Right, well. yeah. 45-31. At their yeah. their old their old minor league baseball park that was dumped. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the fairgrounds. That was a tough place to play. Yeah, but, you know, we, we still had some good talent on that team. And, you know, probably should have won one, maybe two games more. 
but, you know, again, we were young on defense that year, too, and rebuilding on that side also. And, you know, it takes a little bit of time to get that thing going. But, boy, we were, we were set up for the next year when David took over. So, would you – looking at that season with the offensive line, and, and I don't know how much you've watched us so far, what, do you see any similarities with our offensive line struggles and, and what you guys dealt with in 97? Yeah, I, I think they've got talent right now. Yeah, that offensive line, those guys are big and they can move their feet. So, you know, it's not a talent issue right there. But you do have kind of the same situation in that, you know, Steve Shankweiler has been the offensive line coach here for years and years. And, you know, Shank and I are friends, and I think a lot of him as a coach and a friend. But, you know, you're going to miss a guy like that when he steps away. Mm-hmm. And I'm Definitely. sure they got a really good offensive line coach right now. I don't know the guy, but I'm sure he's good and does a good job and all that type of stuff. But you can't replace a guy like Shank just immediately, in my opinion. I, I think that's a little bit of the thing that they're missing. And then those guys just being young. And that position up there, you, you talk about it's not just one guy. You know, five guys have to communicate on every play. And they've got to make calls not before the play. They've got to make calls during the play. They've got to make calls just before the play. A defense shifts just a little bit. they got to change the call up front. So there's a lot of communication that goes up there in the offensive line that people really don't appreciate having played in that area. Yeah, and you, and you, you kind of – and I'm glad you confirmed what I thought. Uh, you you would know better than me. That's what I thought. I, I look at us and we look talented on the O-line. I think it's just a matter of them coming together and learning to play as a unit. As far yeah. as our O-line coach, uh, um kind of, from what I understand, um, nudged Houston in that direction to make that hire. And also Dwayne Ledford, uh, who you know well, um, mm-hmm. speaks very, high, very highly of our current O-line coach. So hopefully we got the right guy there. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. But it's like I said, it's the communication things. You know, and Shank probably communicated things differently than this coach is going to communicate things. All, all coaches are different. You know, even when I was working with Steve, he might say things a little bit different than I did to, to the quarterback and those type of things. So the longer you work together, the better you get at those things. And, and that takes time. But it's really more the players gelling up there. And, and you got to have one guy up there that's the leader. You know, hopefully that's your center. You really hope it that it's that guy because that's the guy that's going to make most of the calls and and, uh, and has to hold the whole thing together anyway. So it really starts there, and then the communication for those guys. And then, you know, if you have an experienced quarterback, you can hide some of that too because he can check you out of bad plays right. and get you in better plays. You know, he can get you from a good play to a great play. You know, right now I don't think they have that ability too, so that's going to hamper that a little bit also until the quarterback gets settled. And you know, you when you look at when you look at things, one thing everybody kind of thought was we were going to be able to run the ball pretty well um, with with the backs we have coming back. But you know, you look at you look at '97. We had Scott Harley and young offensive line. We really couldn't run the ball. How much does not having a a, a locked in quarterback and and not having the passing game where we want it affect us not being able to run the ball? Yeah, in my opinion, that's huge. You know, our our whole running game, and you're right about Steve and our offense, we always wanted to be able to run the ball when we wanted to run it. You know, we we weren't just going to be hard-headed about it, but when we wanted to or when we needed to run the football, we wanted to be able to do that. But our passing game was tied into the the running game. You know, if we didn't get the right look to run the ball, then it was an automatic check to a pass, some type of pass to get the defense honest again. And people knew that we could hurt them throwing the football. We had weapons on the outside, wide receivers that could make plays. And, you know, we would start off most games very aggressive throwing the ball so it opened up the running lanes. And we were different than most people. Most people would start off 
running it to set up the throw. We were just the opposite. We were going to throw it to set up the run. Yeah, and, and Coach Houston, uh, Donnie Kirkpatrick's offense is kind of the opposite. We run it to set up the pass, and I guess six and one half a dozen of the others, whatever you prefer. But I think you got to have both uh, in most offenses, unless you're running the air raid for it to be successful. Um, At some point in every game, you've got to be able to run the football. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's going to become a point in every football game where whether you're you have the lead and you're trying to protect the lead or you're you're wanting to possess the ball to help your defense or whatever it is. But at some point, you have to be able to run the football. Yeah, no doubt, particularly in goal line situations. Um, we'll jump into the 98 season. And I, don't, don't worry, I'm not going to go through every single season in detail. <laughs> <laughs> you're testing my memory. Yeah. Well, Jim, well, you'll remember this guy. We jump into the 98 season, and we have a guy named David Gerard yeah. uh, playing quarterback. Uh, and, uh, early in the season, though, Bobby Weaver, was the starter, and David was coming off the bench, and it seemed like we were rolling early. We were five, I believe, four and one, five and one, something like that. And then, yeah, then yeah. Bobby gets injured against Army, and um, David had all the talent in the world, but wasn't quite ready to start just yet. I don't think. Talk about that. It, just it. Did, did you guys were you planning on sticking with that two quarterback system all year? Um, and and or you know. I just I always wonder how things would have played out differently. Obviously, it played out better for us in the long run with Gerard, but I always wonder how things would have played out differently that season had Bobby not got hurt. Yeah, so you know, I'll, I'll tell you this: more more quarterbacks are ruined than made, and, and I say there's a real delicate thing about developing a quarterback, and you see it all the time. Somebody plays a guy before he's ready, and they just destroy his confidence, or they're asking him to do things he's not ready to do even though he's ultra talented and it, it destroys the kid. And that was David. You know, David Gerard was ultra talented, but he just wasn't quite ready to be the starting quarterback. And we wanted to protect him because we knew we had something really special in him. We, we, there was no doubt. And we knew he was going to end up being the starting quarterback. <clears throat> Bobby was a little more mature, a little bit ahead mentally in the game at that point. And, and Bobby was really athletic. So we felt like it would be better to start Bobby in games let David have a couple of series to watch and then bring him in when he could be successful and get some confidence going. And it was working really well. And uh, then obviously, like you said, Bobby got hurt and then it had to be David after that. And so it kind of accelerated his growth anyway. Um, but by the end of the season, man, we we knew we had something really special coming. And and I learned that from Steve, you know, how to develop those guys and how to protect them at times and um, just make sure you're you're developing a quarterback the right way so that he doesn't get shell-shocked, he doesn't lose his confidence, and and you get him developed on, on a schedule. I want, to, I want to come back to that quarterback development point um, here in a minute, but you just you talked about uh, by the end of the year, you, we knew we had something special, um, which makes me think of one of my there's, – there's games that stick out to you in people's career, and, you know, Gerard played so many great games after that, but one of the games that sticks out in my mind vividly is the 98 game against Memphis – where we were down, I believe it was 20. Do you remember? Was it 24 7 at halftime, coach? Yeah, and I know he came back and threw for like over 300 yards. Over 400 yards. <laughs> over yeah. 400 yards in that game. It so, was, it, it was, go ahead. So, in that game, you know, and Steve and I are always talking about, you know, David and how's he doing and all this thing. I was in the press box, Steve's on the field, which was a great, you know, mix for us because he had David right there and, and you know, we could talk and, you know, Going into the second half, you know, Steve said, "Doug, I, I think he's ready, man. Just go, go the go the intermediate passing game. Just go drop back game." 
And so we just went to a straight drop back game and it's plays that we knew David was comfortable with. There's about six, seven different pass concepts that we knew he was good at. And man, we just started calling those plays over and over and over. And he just, he just took off. And that was the, that was the start of him becoming an elite quarterback because he was doing things, changing reads, changing protections. He was doing things at that point that he couldn't do earlier in the season. And it was, well, that, that was the game where we knew we were really set for the years to come. There was a play on the last drive, uh, the last drive of the game. We kick a field goal to win it. I'm sure you remember that, where David was in the end zone getting ready to get sacked for a safety. He had a guy hanging all over him. He throws the ball about 20, 20 yards downfield with the, with the defender hanging all over him in the, in the end zone. Do you remember that play? Oh, yeah, yeah, and, and a lot like that. Now, that was David, though. You know, he's he had ultimate confidence in himself, and uh, – you know, you talk about a guy that worked really hard. People remember David as being, you know, that muscled up, you know, really fit guy that was athletic and could run. They don't remember when David came to us, he weighed 270 pounds. Yeah, I remember. You know, I mean, and, and we told him, you got to be 230 when you play. And so that red shirt year, he lost all that weight and worked his tail off. And we, we couldn't let him lift weights because the more weights he lifted, the bigger he got. And he was more uh, on a cardio system. Jeff Connors did a great job of getting him down where he needed to be. And David was disciplined enough to do it. And that whole mentality about him just wanting to play that bad, you know, said everything you need to know about him. Is that story true? It's been told for years. And Stevie, if you, if you, if you, if you got a question, just jump in over me. I got you. I I know what you're going to ask. Okay. Is that story, (laughs) we've heard it for years and, and I've always wanted, Supposedly, he came into a, uh, I guess it was a high school camp in East Carolina. And, <laughs> Is this, I know which one you're going to ask. Yeah, and, and and Logan told him, you know, what are you doing over here? You should be with the tight ends or whatever. And he said, I'm a quarterback coach. And Logan handed him the ball, and he threw it over the school. The I guess I guess Elmhurst or CMFs. <laughs> is that is that a true story, or has that been exa- – I bet you there's some truth to it. That ball hit in the parking lot of that little school over there. That's a true story. That ball, he was on about the 50-yard line in Dowdy Ficklin Stadium. He threw that ball over the stands and landed over there in the parking lot. He's kind of ticked off that Steve didn't think he was a quarterback. So Steve legitimately well, didn't think he was a quarterback. Oh, dude was 270 pounds. <laughs> you know, he, he like well, there was that guy in Kentucky. And, I, and I'll tell you what. So about 15 minutes after that, we had David and about four of these other little high school receivers on another field just working him out just to see exactly what we had here. And, you know, he ran a Veer high school offense. You know, he hardly threw yeah. the ball. So nobody really knew, you know, what he was. And, uh, you know, boy, we, we, we were fortunate to get him. Did y'all offer him that day? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was, a, he was a constant deal from then on. That was a daily writing letter writing session. Every, every coach on our staff wrote David Gerard a handwritten letter every day from that moment until we got him on campus. When you to circle back around to quarterback development, you mentioned how you can ruin a quarterback rather than make them, or a lot of quarterbacks were ruined rather than made. Um, when you look at the situation at East Carolina this year, Mason Garcia has been here for many years. He has not been rushed on the field. He he's been in practice, you know, taking his time. You you could maybe make an argument that we probably should have got him into some games a little bit more um, when we had some big leads when Holton was here. Um, but he, you know, they've taken their time with him. He's had ample, ample opportunity to learn the offense, and everybody thought he was going to be great. He struggled so far. Alex Flynn's come off the bench. 
and has done some nice things. And, and, and Mason's done some nice things with his legs. Yeah. But when I see Mason, and you, you again, you'll know this better than me, Mason just – I use the word scared, and I don't mean scared. I know the, he's, he's a big, strong dude. He's not scared. Happy feet. Happy. Yeah, happy feet. And he looks like he's, he's so scared he's going to make a mistake that he's scared to throw the ball downfield. Yeah, well, you know, all quarterbacks are different. And I, I tell you, some things you can teach a quarterback – and some things is just God-given to them, okay? One of those things that's God-given is have the, the ability to see the field from the pocket as, as a drop-back passer. You know, people don't appreciate those big guys are in your face. You've got to find passing lanes. You've still got to be able to see the field. And that's what he is not comfortable doing, what I see. And this is just my opinion. Like, I don't know him. I haven't been on the field with right. him. Anything like that. just watching games. He's not comfortable in that. And that's okay. There's plenty of ways to throw the football without doing that. You just change the launch point. To me, if he's going to be your quarterback, the running game, first of all, needs to go through him. It needs to be a spread offense where he's running the ball quite a bit, a lot of quarterback runs and things like that, quarterback draws, all those type of things to accentuate what he's good at. And then to throw the ball, it needs to be play action passes where he only has to read half the field. You're moving the launch point so he doesn't have to sit there in that pocket. And he can create things for you then. Uh, the other kid, Flynn, he's more of a drop-back passer. He sees the field pretty good from the pocket. And that's what I was talking about earlier. You know, to me, that's what was great about our offensive system is we could fit any quarterback into it and we could change to their style. I mean, our same offensive system created Mark Crandall, who was completely different than David Gerard, who was completely different than Julian Edelman, who was yeah. completely different than Josh Cribbs, who I had. And then right. Steve and I both were the offensive coordinator at Boston College at one time or another, and he had um, – Matt Ryan and I had a kid named Chase Reddick who both broke school records at Boston College were strictly drop back passers, but they all came out of the same offensive system. And that's what I was always so proud of about our system and impressed with what Steve taught me the system because it, it could fit into any quarterback style. But that's what you got to find out as a coach. What are they good at? What can they do? And then that's got to be your offense. What when you see what we're trying to do offensively, do do you, do you see one or the other that would be – what you see as their strengths and how you say Mason should play, you know, obviously it's Flynn's traditional drop-back guy. Which do you think fits our offense better from what you've seen? Well, I think Flynn right now, because it seems like they want to throw the ball from the pocket. They want, you know, uh, they, they want to be a pocket-passing team. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, different play actions and different changes in the launch point and all those type of things for the quarterback right now. Um, there's some empty sets and things like that where you're going to need to be able to see the ball down the field. You're going to be able to – you have to be able to throw hot when blitzes come. You have to be able to change protections and those type of things. So uh, probably Flynn in, in, in that case. But, you know, it's not just the quarterback. It's the other people around him too. And one of the things I think that's hurting the quarterback right now is they don't quite have the playmakers that they had last year too. No. When you look at, you know, the wide receivers particularly, I know they had the two wide receivers last year that were big, they were physical – they could win one-on-one -on -one matchups. And Marshall played them in a lot of man coverage and brought a lot of pressures. And there wasn't really a receiver that was separating, getting away, and getting open. And I don't care who you are as a quarterback, if, if the guy can't get open for you and can't make plays, it's tough. And uh, so all those things go together. You know, you, you got to figure out what that, uh, you know, what gives you the best chance to win as a whole offense, not just a quarterback. No, it makes sense. It all fits together piece <clears throat> by piece. Um, Steve, you got anything you want to you want to you want to ask us before I move on to the to the next topic? I, I we'll we'll 
Bubba was talking about a game against West Virginia in 1999 where you guys ran for over 300 yards. Talk a little bit about that game. Yeah, in Charlotte, to open the season. Yeah. Yeah, you know, West Virginia, you know, we played a lot of big-time teams back in that yeah, day. And I, I tell you, one of the most impressive things about Steve Logan's tenure is go back sometime and, and just write down all the power conference teams that we beat in those 10 years. It's a it's almost forty it's almost forty games. I went and did it one day, which is really impressive that Steve was able to have that consistency. But West Virginia was one of those teams that, man, they were just tough. They were really physical, and uh, we kind of were priding ourselves on being a physical football team at that time. And so to be able to start like that and match a team's physicalness and their speed. Uh, you know, kind of told us that we had a pretty good football team that year. So, you know, it's just one of those days. It was a good day for us. What, wasn't there something that West Virginia said during the during the summer that got back to, to our guys and Connors kind of used it as motivation? I, I don't remember. It wasn't cupcake. It was it was lightweight or something yeah, like that. Yeah, something about lightweight. And if there wasn't something, Jeff probably made it up. So, so, <laughs> you, know, so you know, he Jeff was the best at motivational stuff. Now, I, I'll tell you a quick story. We're down playing South Carolina, and I can't remember what year it was. It might have been the 96 year. I can't remember. But anyway, we're playing at South Carolina, and Jeff always gave the motivational talk. And it was all about killer instinct in that in that night, it was all about having a killer instinct and stepping on somebody's throat. And he put together a clip of all these gory horror films, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Scarface, <laughs> all this stuff, and put it to music and, and had different football plays mixed in with it and everything. And, and then he had a drill sergeant that was going to talk to the team after that. And during the film, the drill sergeant left. He, he Wow. Just, and so the next day, Jeff made up some excuse to the players why the guy left or something. And the next day, we found the guy told Jeff, he said, hey, man, after I watched what you guys were doing, there was nothing I could tell those kids <laughs> what you were doing. <laughs> so, so we were ready to play most days. Yeah, Co Coach Connor scared a drill sergeant away. That, that really <laughs> yeah, Look, I'll tell, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Go ahead. No, I can totally see that happening to him scaring a drill sergeant away. I'll tell you a funny uh, Jeff Connor story. Um, we uh, we were doing a live show um, a few years back, and uh, Pirate Nostalgia Party, Professor O'Cools, and um, Jeff Connors was one of the guests. And um, we were having trouble with our headsets, and uh, and and and, uh, and Jeff finally he's like, do, do, he, like, do I need this? I was like, no, you don't have to wear it. He took it and slammed it down on the table. I was like, well, if it won't work and ride it, damn, it ain't gonna work right now. He was. <laughs> So frustrated with the hits. So Jeff's a very intense guy. Um, I tell you, he was the best strength coach I've ever been around. I'll say that. No, nah, he was great. Now, every one of his players speak highly of him. I've yet to talk to a player that 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 played under, however you want to say that, that Jeff Connors trained that, that doesn't speak highly of him. I mean, I'm sure there's some players out there that hate his guts, but I've yet to run into one of them. Well, he was a big part, you know, of our whole philosophy at that time. You know, Steve's, you know – Fans used to get tired of Steve talking about winning on the last play of the game. They wanted us to blow people out and all that stuff. And, but what we realized, what Steve realized was, you know, very rarely are we going to have better talent than everybody we're playing. So, you know, how do you beat Miami of Florida, which we did twice while we yeah. were there? Well, our, our philosophy was in the fourth quarter, we're going to be faster than you. We, we may not be in the first quarter or the second quarter, 
But in the fourth quarter, we're going to be faster than you. And that was, you know, Jeff training those guys. The way we ran, I mean, I've never been around a place where we conditioned more during the season than what we did at that time. And our, our players were just – they were tougher and they were they were just in better shape than most people we played. Yeah, talk about yeah, that. Go ahead. Steve. That's something I, I try to get across to my players too, you know, how we how we are in the fourth quarter and as much as you don't like what we're doing right now to get you ready to be in shape for that fourth quarter it's going to pay off in the fourth quarter and you know a couple of games ago that i I was on the sidelines talking to them i said you look at them they're gassed right now and you guys are ready to go another quarter and they got it then but still you know you get back in practice now and they're still like Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, don't you guys just remember what you did in that fourth quarter a couple of weeks ago? But it's 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 so important to have that. You're exactly right. Well, that that was a philosophy for us. I remember the the hurricane game where we played Miami at NC State Stadium. You know, because we couldn't get back home because of the hurricane. I was about to ask you about that. And you know, we're down. I want twenty one points at halftime or something. Yeah. I remember coming down at halftime and. Steve said, what, what are you seeing up there? And I said, God, thanks, Steve. They look like they're playing on Honda motorcycles, man. They're just running <laughs> us down. And he said, well, just keep calling plays. Fourth quarter, we'll be fine. And, you know, sure enough, that's what happened. You know, as the game went on, we, our guys got stronger and stronger and kept playing the same speed, and, and they slowed down. And, you know, we were able to make a couple of plays and, and end up winning the game. But that was something our players and our, our program was built on, they believed in. And that, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about identity. You got to have an identity. You got to figure out what that is back in spring ball and early in summer camp, and and then you got a chance if you can figure out who you are. That 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 Miami game, just that whole preparation for that. Everybody knows the story. Hurricane Floyd comes through, floods Eastern North Carolina, floods Greenville. You guys go to South Carolina, beat the Gamecocks down there. I believe it was Lou Holt's first home game. Was, um, yeah. And you, you start the, the Holt's era off. You know, in the right way for us, and, and then you you you're you're stuck in Columbia. I remember the the one pair of underwear story and, wow. and all this. Talk about that experience, man. They don't make coaching manuals for those situations. I can tell you that. So, you know, we're stuck down there, and you know, Lou Holtz wasn't very happy with us, so he wouldn't let us practice at their facility after we beat <laughs> them. So we actually practiced at a high school down there, and. You're right. I mean, the one pair of underwear, I mean, when you go on a trip, you're only going one night. So all right. the players, they don't bring a lot of change of clothes and things like that. We had nothing. So there was and a what, and let, me, let me ask you a question. I don't mean to interrupt you, but back then the NCAA was way more stringent than they are now. Could you guys even buy the players' clothes to have in, a, in an emergency? No. We had to get our NCA rep, uh, compliance lady, had to get you know permission. There's a church down there that actually took up a ton of, made a ton of money for us, gathered up. I mean, we bought the players' sweats and things like that, okay. uh, and we're able to do that. And the, the community down there was great to us. So, but it was tough. You know, we like to say we practiced at the high school. We worked out at a Gold's Gym. Connor's got a Gold's Gym list. Coming down there, lift weights. We took the players bowling one night and stuff like that. And uh, so we just did that all week and just got, kind of made it a fun deal, you know, and just sold it to players. We're going to have fun doing this. And I traveled up to Raleigh that Thursday and, and ended up playing the game that Saturday and, you know, and then got back home after that. And when we got back home, what we realized is a lot of the players, you know, their apartments had flooded and some of them were homeless at the time. And golly, we had to go out and find out ways to get them, uh, you know, new furniture and new places to live and new clothes and, 
it was a mess and Steve did a great job of handling it. And, uh, you know, but it, it was something that bonded our team together though, at that time, uh, it's probably one of the better things that happened to us. Yeah, no, everybody remembers that. And, you know, one of the things you talk about all the players being displaced and, you know, I need new furniture and all, and you guys had to get ready and go to West Point and play army um, yeah. after that well, Miami game. So, but how about the crowd that, you know, the, all the crowd from Greenville, Oh, the major just gone, through, just gone through an incredible flood and they've all got their own problems, but I'll be damned. They showed up at that game. <laughs> and then of course the pirates, you're the only people in the world that go to somebody else's stadium and then tear their reminded. I was reminded of that uh, last week about from an NC state fan, you know, y'all still owe us a goalpost. <laughs> no, we don't Steve. No, we don't Steve. You know why? We, we told them, I'm sure Coach oh, yeah, I remember I, this, the administration told, the told them if they beat us in Dowdy Ficklin Stadium at the end of the 99 season, that they could tear down our goalposts, but they just couldn't quite get it done. Yeah, and, I, <laughs> and that was my exact response, too, to that. Uh, I remember that well. The the 99 game against NC State, uh, the last game of the regular season, uh, it was relatively low scoring. Did you guys – I don't remember us throwing the ball a lot against NC State. I remember Gerard having quite a few uh, option runs, um, and it, you know playing really good defense. Was, was was that the game plan going into that game to be more conservative offensively? Yeah, you know if I remember correctly, back then we were we were dealing with some injuries at that time of the year, especially on defense, and we were trying to do some things to you know keep our defense on the sideline, keep them rested, and and still play well points, in that game. Yeah, you know, still score points and. Uh, so, you know, running David became a big deal at that game. You know, we ran a lot of speed option back in those days with him and some trap option even at those time too. So, uh, and those are things NC State was having trouble stopping the run. So that was kind of the avenue we went. And again, I th- we always felt like we had the ability to change up from week to week and be whoever we needed to be. Yeah, and it really didn't matter. You you guys knew as long as you won that one by one point, it could have been it could have been three to two and everybody would have been happy in that one. Uh, just win. Uh, yep, just win. Um, okay, so we're going to jump ahead here real fast. Um, I'm going I'm to to the 2 season uh, because um, my executive producer, Mr. Bubba Rosenbaum, well, that was the season he really wanted me to ask you about, the 2 season in contrast to our current situation. We had just graduated David Garrard. We had Paul Troth coming in who was, you know, very highly recruited. You had Desmond Robinson. So, you, you know, you had a two-quarterback situation there with Paul getting most of the reps. Um Talk about that, that season, and does that compare more to what you're seeing this season? Probably very similar. Um, you know, we were kind of doing the same thing with Paul. You know, he was a young quarterback that had a world of talent, man. He had a big arm. He was a big kid. He was a different type of player. He was a drop-back passer. So, you know, we were having to tweak things a little bit. And, you know, again, that year we are close to winning seven, maybe eight games. And you know, I think we I think we end up winning four. We beat TCU, which was a top 20 team at that time. And, yeah. you know, he was showing signs where he was going to be something special. Uh, and then we had a young man named James Pinckney coming behind him that was going to be a really good player also. So hey, he we did turn out to be a really good player. We were in pretty good shape. Uh, it was just going to be one of those years where it was going to take us a little bit more time. And then we were going to shift after that season back to really the Jeff Blake offense where we were going to spread people out and throw it like crazy with Paul. That, that was the plan it, had we stayed. And then, of course, you know, they made the ridiculous decision to let the 
all-time winningest coach go. So it didn't work out. But had we stayed, that was the plan for Paul and and the offense, and and we would have been rolling again. Uh, but you know, ten years is a long time to be at any place. And you know, Bill Walsh always said, once you've been somewhere ten years, that's about it. And you know that that's what happened to us. And then you you know you band up and, and move on, and that's what we did. Yeah, and you ended up at uh, at Kent State. Um served as their OC one year, then became the head coach. Uh, talk about your time at Kent State. I know um, you had some success there. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough place to win. Yeah, it's a really tough place to win. I think, you know, there's some things I was really proud of there. Dean Pease was the head coach at that time when I went to be the offense coordinator the first year. And Dean, I don't know how many people are familiar with him. He was a longtime uh, defense coordinator in the NFL. In fact, he – after my first year at Kent State, he left to go be the linebacker coach of the New England Patriots, and they promoted me to the head coach. I mean, I didn't try to get the job or anything. They just handed it to me. And, you know, I knew it was going to be one of the toughest jobs in the country. There's really no resources there to, to be a, a quality football program, and you're kind of struggling with a lot of different things facility-wise. And all the, there's not a fan base there like there was here at East Carolina. So there's a lot of things to deal with. Um, but, you know, we, we – were one of the only staffs. I think there's been four staffs in the last maybe 30 years that have won six games there and gotten bowl eligible. And we were one of those. Julian Edelman was our quarterback. Yeah. I had Josh Cribbs first, who ended up being a broke every school record there, running the same offense we ran in East Carolina. And Josh went on to play a long time for the Cleveland Browns. And then Julian Edelman came in. He ran the same offense and broke all Josh's records. And you know, he got us bowl eligible uh, one year there. We beat Iowa State, which was a big win, almost beat Kentucky. And, uh, you know, had a, had a good run there. We're there for quite a while and then, uh, you know, moved on from there. Yeah, you OC at Boston College briefly. And then evidently you're a glutton for punishment because you wanted to see which job was tougher, Kent State or Las Cruces, New Mexico, and New Mexico State. Which job is tougher? The New Mexico State job was much tougher. Yeah, so I left Kent State. I went to New Mexico State for one year as the offense coordinator. Okay. Uh, Dwayne Walker was head coach. Dwayne and I had the same agent. Dwayne was a good friend, and he needed help. And so I went there, and uh, we I think we broke every offensive record they had that year. And then Frank Spaziani hired me to come to Boston College and uh, went there to be the offense coordinator. Man, we almost – had that program turned around and uh, had really good all year offensively there. Uh, and then Spaz got let go at the end of the year. New Mexico State offered me the job to come back as the head coach. And I had a younger son at that time that was, uh, see, Bobby was probably a sophomore in high school and he loved New Mexico when we were there for the one year before uh, and, and was kind of really kind of catching his stride there at that time. And so we went back really more for Bobby than anything. Uh, and uh, tough job. My first year there, in fact, uh, a guy named Gary Carruthers was the president of the university. He was trying to get rid of the football program. Wow. So I had to be in a meeting with about 14 administrators and other people trying to convince them to keep the football program and somehow managed to do that. And then, you know, two years later, we went to the first bowl game in 57 years. Yeah. The Arizona Bowl. Um, yeah. You guys beat Utah State. Yeah. Um, and then I remember I, I was cheering for you so hard in that game. You have no idea. Um, <laughs> and uh, so glad to see you guys win that. We didn't go to a bowl that year. Um, so I'm so glad to see you guys win that bowl game. And uh, I, I remember, for whatever reason, I, I, I watch weird stuff on YouTube. And somehow I found a video 
of uh, New Mexico State fans. Evidently, there was an in and out burger near the stadium. Celebrating it in after the ball went. That's about right. That's about right. Uh, you know, we, we broke the attendance record for that bowl. It took twenty five thousand fans over there to Tucson, and I mean it was it was a great deal. And to tell you kind of what it's like being the head coach, you know, Stevie and I were talking about this before. So I mean, just picture this: you've just gone to the first bowl game in fifty seven years, and we gave so much free publicity to that university because of what the football program did mm-hmm. that the enrollment blossomed. So you had every reason to support a football program now. And the reason New Mexico State's a hard job is because the facilities are awful and you just don't put anything into it. So I had a meeting with the AD and the president after that bowl. I said, you know, here's your window of opportunity. You guys have a chance to really have something special here. And I was told, no, we're not going to put anything into football. We're just going to keep trying to be a basketball school and you guys just do the best you can. So I, I went home and I told Vicky, my wife, I said, we're going to coach this contract out and then I'm done with college football. And that's exactly what we did. Well, you left them in good shape because Jerry Keel goes in there last year and takes them to a bowl game. And uh, those, those were your players. So you got to be proud of them. Yeah. And, you know, I was really happy what, what they did. I mean, they, they caught a break, really. They, they ended up getting to play two FCS schools. Yeah. yeah. Caught a little break, had to get a waiver to get in the bowl game. But, you know, Jerry's a great guy. I've known him for a long time. He's he's got a tough job now. And this is why my hair looks like it does. All that <laughs> coaching jobs I had made this hairdo possible, right? Here. Do, do, do you think it makes it a little easier for them or makes the job any better than being in Conference USA now? Oh, it's definitely easier. I mean, right, that really, I mean, there's a lot of teams that are going in that conference that are just moving up from FCS level yeah. that they should be able to compete with. And and honestly, it's I mean, it's a really a weak conference. Yeah, I think yeah, Western Kentucky and Middle Tennessee are probably the only two really good teams in that league. So, La Tech should be, but they ain't La right Tech's been struggling a little bit right now. So, you know, and the other thing that we had the problem with was every year we had to play three power conference schools when I was there. And now with Jerry, they're only playing one every year. Yeah. And that, that helps a lot, you know, because you have to play UTEP and University of New Mexico every year. So, you know, those are locked in. And then – but playing three power conference schools was just, you know, almost unheard of. But that's how you paid all the bills. You know, we played Alabama twice. I think we played everybody in the SEC. <laughs> so, it was a tough deal. Two, 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 two more questions about New Mexico State. One, how, how big of a deal is it for their fans to be in the same conference with UTEP, you think? That's big. You know, that, that's a big rival game. They're only 30 miles apart, you know, so that, that's a huge game. So you have two big rivals, UTEP and then UNM, University of New Mexico up in Albuquerque. So uh, it's a little bit unique in that you do have the two rivals. But that, that UTEP game in New Mexico State is big because you are so close together. And the other question, uh, they're in the same conference now as Liberty and Conference USA. Another good football program, Conference USA Liberty. When you were there, you guys did a, a home and home in the same season with Liberty. I believe you were the head coach when they did that. Yeah, we actually did that with them and Hawaii. And and the reason Oh was, wow, I didn't realize it was Yeah, we did that with Hawaii too, because we were independent and we were one of the few right. independent teams left in the in the nation. And yeah. so it was really hard to schedule, really hard to schedule games. Uh, so they got permission from the NCA to do that. Uh, Liberty at that time was trying to move up also, so it worked for them. Hawaii, it worked for them because they're always in a struggle to get home games and you know and and not travel as much. So those are the type of things you have to deal with when you're someplace like New Mexico State. It's a tough, tough deal. How, how weird is that from a preparation standpoint, having to play the same team twice? I mean, I, maybe it makes things easier. 
Yeah, it was different. I actually called some friends in the NFL at that time because you know, obviously they do that every year. And just it was interesting. You know, it was different, you know, because you can't do the same thing that you did in the game before, uh, whether you win or lose. But you don't want to change so much that you lose your rhythm and lose your your identity and everything, too. So there's really a fine line to walk there. Uh, but it was unique. And then, you know, last year coaching the USFL, I really got a dose of that because obviously we we play everybody twice. And uh, it's interesting. Yeah, you're uh, you're coaching the USFL now. Um, I look today of what team you know, you're coaching for. It <laughs> slipped my mind. Talk about where you're coaching the USFL and, uh, I, I you know, what you expect this coming spring. It looks like a merger with the XFL. Yeah, so I was offense coordinator with the New Orleans Breakers, and uh, John D. Filippo was our head coach. John's a longtime NFL offensive coordinator. Was with the Philadelphia Eagles when they won the Super Bowl. So uh, it was my first time with pro football, and uh, I tell you what, it was awesome because you know you don't have to worry about kids going to class. You don't have to worry about recruiting. You don't have to worry about fundraising. You don't have to worry about facilities. You don't. It's not no NIL transfer rules. None of that. It's just coach football. And you talk about players that are motivated and that just want to be coached because these guys, they're trying to get to the NFL or they're trying to stay in the USFL just to keep getting some money in their pocket for as long as they possibly can. So you don't have to beg these guys to go out and work hard and practice and in meetings, they're attentive. These guys are self-motivated. They're grown men. Uh, it was just a joy. The players were phenomenal. I, I loved it. Competition was great. Uh, you know, we, finished second in the league. We we're seven and three and our quarterback was first in the league in passing and our running back was first in the league in rushing. And, you know, for a first time staff, our head coach, it was his first year. And most of us, it was our first year there. Uh, it was really a lot of fun. We felt like we established something that this year coming up. We, we think we can be a pretty good football team. Yeah. Looking forward to that. And I look forward to seeing what happens with the merger between the USL and XFL. I I think that's probably a good a, a good thing, particularly if they use the USFL branding. I know that's way above your pay grade, but you know I, I don't yeah, know. Like, you know. Assistant coaches, like we'll, we'll be the last ones to know. I promise I, you. Maybe you know, you're the, USFL, the, the USFL is owned by Fox, so we have our own television deal. Right. Uh, Fox has done a great job of setting it up and the way they've done it. You know, we're not in our home cities yet. We had four hubs. So like us in Birmingham, we were located in Birmingham. There were two teams in Memphis or two teams in Canton, Ohio, and two teams in Detroit. So the original plan was that we would play another season like that, and then the teams would be sold to private ownership, and you'd move to your own host city. So it would be interesting to see if that still goes or, you know, if the XFL merger happens or what, what goes on. But Fox has done a great job of establishing the USFL to where it's on solid ground. It's making money, and it's uh, – in a pretty good position right now. Yeah, that's. I've, I've watched some UFL ball and uh, I have enjoyed it. So uh, glad to see the league succeeding. Uh, Steve, yeah. do you have uh, do you have anything else for Coach? Or do, is there I'm, any comments? I'm good, uh, but I just uh, I appreciate him coming on. It's been it's been an honor to be able to talk to him. Hey, Coach, uh, if, if you uh, if you if you uh, had some words for Pirate Nation, uh, you know uh, about um, you know how to be patient with maybe with the staff, I will. What what would you tell Pirate Nathan? I, I won't put any words in your mouth. Well, one thing is this: you know, you want to have a passionate fan base, you know, and and so if people weren't upset, that's a problem, right. okay? But you've got a passionate fan base, and you appreciate that. And at the same time, you got to understand that when you are at this level, 
and you're dealing with NIL and transfers, which are things we didn't have to deal with when I was at East Carolina. Those things have changed the game. And those things were done, you know, intentionally to separate the power conference from the other schools. I'm just telling you this, and that could be another long conversation we have someday, but that that's why that was done. And it's working that, that, you know, East Carolina doesn't have the same ability to do NIL that North Carolina does or Clemson does or those type of schools. And once you develop a player and you get him really good, guess what? They're going to try to recruit him because now there's no more transfer rules. You, yeah. you can lose your best player every year. There's a lot of things they're dealing with that haven't, you haven't had to deal with in the past. So just be patient. You've got a good head coach. He's got a good plan. They've shown some success already in the past two years. It's it's going this, this these seasons are long. This is early in the year. You know, just see if they can make progress this year and you know, get one big win, it gets your season rolling. Definitely. Coach, we thank you for coming on. Hope you uh come on again sometime. I enjoyed it, guys. Good to meet you. Right. Good to meet thank you. you, sir. Thank you very much, coach. All right. There we go. <laughs> so I was waiting for Coach to close it out. <laughs> it's always an awkward moment, you know, if they don't know to quite, yeah. if the guests don't know to quite close it out, we're like, oh, oh, do I say something? So, so, uh, so Stevie, um, we, uh, you know, Coach Martin talked about the development. We got Gardner Webb this weekend. Uh, talk about that. We'll, we'll talk about that real fast and we'll give our top five and get out of here. Um, the running Bulldogs coming in. Um, also have a tropical system coming in. Yeah, so we're going to have to watch both. Um, if the game does get played Saturday night, uh, Gardner Webb has played very well against FBS opponents the last two years. They played three last year. They've already played one this year. I watched their head coach's press conference. He's a very cocky little guy. I'll tell you that. Um, he, uh, <laughs> he he is extremely confident, and he believes they're going to come in here and win. I can tell. Um, so uh, their, their defense, they got 10 starters returning off last year's defense. Uh, they've been a really good offensive team in the past. This year, they're relying more on their defense. They beat Elon, played App State well, uh, got upset on a last-second field goal by Tennessee State this past right. weekend. But they are a very formidable opponent. Let me tell you something. Their offense, they, they, what they do, they run – it's that Josh Heupel, Tennessee, UCF-style offense. They run a lot of tempo. They'll, they'll, they'll bring out some gadget plays, and they're going to have some, some crap drawn up for us that our defense needs to be prepared for. And you know how gadget plays will hurt us. We've saw that in the Marshall game. Um, yeah, I mean, but those are the kind of coaches that kind of scare you coming in here. The yep. ones that are that are confident and cocky like that. And that's what he's got to portray to to the rest of his team too to get that across his team. Look, I know you can come in here and beat these guys. You you know you got to believe in it too. If I believe in it, you know you've got to believe in it. That's you know, you can't go in there and say, yeah, we're going to play ECU. We'll probably get to get our tails kicked. But, uh, you know, anyway, we're going to Grable. But uh, those they are the lost, guys. They lost to Liberty by one point last year and to Coastal by four points. Yeah. This is a day – you know, this is a dangerous game for ECU, which, you know, I was surprised, maybe a little surprised last week with uh, how we played in the first half, you know, going up 21 to 10. But – you know, coming off that loss like that, and who knows? I, I, have we heard anything about Flynn? Is 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 Flynn going to be able to play this week, or are we going with Mason this week? Uh, Coach Houston kind of sounded like he was going to play them both. Okay. Um, uh, I know with, with with Flynn's shoulder, 
I didn't know if uh, if that was going to be a, a key factor. In who, I, I, who I, I, I don't think so. I think he, I think it was just sore. I haven't heard anything about that being a major injury. Okay. Um, coach, uh, coach uh, Lamb at Gardner Webb, uh, listening to his press conference. Um, you know, he he mentioned Garcia and his legs. So yeah. I don't know if it's because he knows the weather forecast. He's expecting to see Garcia more. Uh, if it is a heavy rain and heavy wind as forecast and the game gets played, uh, you may see more Garcia because, you know, if we're playing football and the wind's blowing 35 miles an hour and it's down. Yeah, right you it yeah, you ain't going to be able to throw it. So um, that could be Garcia's time to shine. Um, it'd also be interesting to see if we play, you know, if the weather, if that, if that low develops and becomes a tropical storm. Um, yeah. Cause this thing pretty much came out of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I, it sounds like we haven't made any pre-plans to move the game to Sunday. If something comes up, uh, obviously that would give us a short week preparation for rice. Uh, we do not have a common bye week. Uh, their bye week is actually the following weekend when we're playing rice. Um, so, hopefully we get this game in. Um, if we don't play Saturday, hopefully they'll they'll have a contingency plan for Sunday. Um, but, you know, we'll see. We can't control the weather, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually waiting right now to hear about my game Friday night. So, we'll, we'll see how that goes, too. Yeah, I would, you know, I would suggest, based on where Halifax County is, um, you guys, if you could play that game earlier in the day on Friday, I don't know what the earliest you guys could play a football game in. Right. Obviously, the kids have to go to class. But maybe if y'all got to have like a 5 o'clock kickoff, you might be able to get it in. Um, yeah. So, I uh, – Anyway, but we, we, we always do a top five each and every week. That's why everybody turns in, Stevie. It ain't to hear Doug Martin. It's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's for it's our just top a, five. It's just a side, side yeah, side. Like, yeah, it's, it's, for, it's for Kyle and Stevie's top five. It's the highlight of the week. I think of the whole podcasting network, not just our show. Um, it's, it's without a doubt the best thing we do. Now, uh, <laughs> so we're going to do top five. And, guys, I'm going to preface this. Top five favorite, favorite. favorite quarterbacks in ECU history. Because I'm going to have a large, you know, somebody's going to be missing from my list that it's going to be pretty Oh, nice. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, my number five quarterback um, is the guy Doug Martin mentioned and a guy that, you know, when I really became an East Carolina fan was the quarterback. So, my number five quarterback is a kid from Robertsonville, North Carolina, uh, Marcus Crandall. Yeah. Great minds think alike, bud. He's number five for me, uh, you know. You remember when he when he came in because that was after Blake a couple years after Blake had left and you were looking, you know, we thought Michael Anderson might be the one, but it, you know he for one reason or another that didn't work out. Um, but Crandall, you hear heard the hype from him coming in when we were recruiting him, and he he shows up and definitely becomes one of the one of the iconic uh, ECU quarterbacks in history there. And a Canadian Football League legend, Canadian also. Football League legend, yeah. league championship, and a Gray Cup MVP. Yep. Yeah. My number four quarterback is a guy that I think was very underrated. Um, a guy who was a great game manager and uh, makes my top five because he won two by God Conference championships. Uh, so at number four, I got Patrick Pinkney. Okay, so I, that's that's one of them I had to to leave out, and you'll see why just a. In just a few minutes, but I'm my number four. Probably, probably will surprise you, 
And I think this is when you came in around the time that you came in as a, uh, as a uh, ECU fan, but David Garrard for me, I'm mean, out. Oh, no, no, no. I, I came in, I came in way, I came in during Crandall. Okay. Okay. So you came in before that. So, yeah, I, I mean, Garrard, you know, I just remember, and, and maybe I should have brought this up to coach his, one of his first games that he started after that, uh, after getting the starting job was at Alabama. I mean, a lot of people, I, I honestly, had forgot until a couple of years ago, and I found it on YouTube, that game that we played at Alabama and almost beat Alabama. Should have beat Alabama. Yeah, should have beat Alabama. But, I mean, this guy was just, uh, you know, as big as he was, he had a strong arm. He could run. He could do it all. And then and then goes on and has, has a pretty decent NFL career with the Jaguars and gave, gave my Steelers a couple of losses in the playoffs. But uh, – yeah, David Garrard's my number four. My number three is a guy that I think was very underappreciated, and I think suddenly people are appreciating him a lot more, uh, and that's Mr. Holton Aylers. Uh, Holton is a guy that, that not only did I like him as a quarterback, but I liked him even more as a human being, uh, the way he carried himself on and off the field. And, um, I, you know, just, just somebody that I, I think is going to, you know, go on and do – good things in life and give a lot back to the university. So uh, my number three favorite ECU quarterback of all time is Holton. Did you see that uh, the Packers worked him out? I did. Yeah. So maybe, maybe you'll be seeing him in green Bay soon. Uh, my, my number three is kind of a nostalgia thing for me. And it, like we said, this is favorite. This is yep. favorite, but this is the quarterback that started it all for me. I remember hearing, Hearing it on the radio, you know, back in the 82, 83 season. But uh, Kevin Ingram. Oh, uh, yeah. He, yeah, master of that that Ed Emery offense that uh, wasn't a big passer, but he could run. Uh, and, I mean, with that, with Biner and Tony Baker and Reggie Branch back there, Daryl Speed, that's a name we hadn't talked about in a while. Uh, but those guys back there and, and that whole 83 team, that's, that's the one that started for me at quarterback. And you always gravitate towards a quarterback, especially at the age I was. I was like 10, 9, 10 years old then. But Kevin Ingram's my number three. Number two for me, I got another recent quarterback, and uh, that is the captain, um, Mr. Shane Carden. And I almost put him number oh, yeah. one. That's how much I love Shane. Um, I Shane was just the tattoo flexing in the end zone against Carolina, uh, you know, putting 70 on him in, in Greenville. Uh, the wins at, you know, the win at Virginia Tech, you know, win at NC, beating Carolina and NC State, the only quarterback in ECU history to beat NC State and North Carolina in the same season. Yeah. Uh, so, number two, Shane Carden. That's my number two as well. Uh, and you talked about the flex. And my daughter to this day, like I said, her first game, first ECU game ever was the 70-41 win over Carolina. But she always remembers Carden as the guy that flexed and had the tattoo. Because uh, she actually, I'll tell you this, is this is how much she loved Carden. Uh, one of her class projects was they had to write a letter to someone, uh, I guess, to, to, to know how to write a, a, a form letter or whatever. But she picked Shane Carden to write her letter to. And I think he actually sent her some stuff back, too. But, uh, yeah, Absolutely. I mean – Big, ta- you you always thought ECU, even if they were way out of the game, which they weren't many times when he was there, but you always thought they were going to still be in that game with that offense with Shane Carden at the helm. 
Yeah, no doubt. And miss those days a lot. Uh, my yeah. number one, yeah. and uh, this is going to be the obvious guy I left off the list once you hear my number one. My number one is David Garrard. Um, to me, Ooh. David is the epitome uh, of, of, of what an ECU quarterback should be. Tough, physical, big arm, great on and off the field. I've met David in person several times. We've interviewed him. Class act all the way. Loves the Pirate fans. Um, so, and, and has given back over the years to ECU, unlike, uh, you know, a lot of other NFL players. Uh, David has given back over the years. And uh, so my number one is David Garrard. And the reason I don't have Jeff Blake on the list, I, I was a fan in 91, okay? I was 11 years old, yeah. but I was a casual fan. I did right. not become a diehard fan until 94. 94 is when I had not missed an ECU game either in person, watching it on TV, or back in those days, sometimes you had to listen to it on the radio. I have not missed a ECU game since 94. Um, but I, So I was a casual fan when Blake was here. So that's why he's not on my list. I know he's he, you know, arguably the greatest of all time at ECU to play the position, but he's not one of my favorites because I didn't watch him play. Um, you know, I, I was casually observing as an 11-year-old. So that's why he didn't make my list. Nothing personal against him. Obviously, I know how great he is. But uh, yeah, I'm going to assume I'm going to go ahead and assume he's your number one. Yeah, that's my number one. That 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 whole that team there is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite, ECU uh, team. That uh, since yeah, I hate I hate everybody that talks about the team because I missed and I wasn't locked in. I wish oh, that would have yeah. happened a few years later. I'm jealous. Jeez, that 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 whole year, and and just to see the performance in the what the fourth quarter, especially in the peach bowl against state, because I'm sitting there, we're down 34, 17 and I'm watching him. And it was never, you know, when we came back and made it 34, 24, he, he was like, just like they had took the lead. I mean, his, his whole demeanor was, was confident. And, and, and I was like, okay, well, we got that, get the ball back and do it again. And then he did it again. So it did it a couple of times, but I guess his his confidence and just the way he he led that offense. I mean, man, gosh, all year. But he had some weapons around him. That team was just just a great team. It's one of my favorite teams. And then, it, by any means, somebody gets me to pull for the Bengals in the NFL. You know, you know, I pulled when Blake got got the nod there for Cincinnati. Shaking Blake. Yeah, shaking Blake, uh, and and put up some big numbers with Carl Pickens and Darnay Scott there. Uh, unless they were playing Pittsburgh, I pulled for the Bengals. Then I wanted to see him do well, and he did. He did well for a while, and uh, moved around the NFL. Had a great NFL career. Uh, finished up in two thousand five with the Bears. But yeah, I mean, Jeff Blake is definitely my number one favorite quarterback. Yeah, and I figured he would be. I think he would be most people's. I I, I knew leaving him off my list, I would have to explain why, and I I think I did that. So if anybody we got it, they can get over it. We do have a uh, a uh, some comments. We have a list in here. Uh, Craig Doucette, he uh, he said Marcus Crandall, Holton Ailes, David Garrard, Jeff Blake, and Shane Carden was his. I, he had yep. Pretty much, you know, it's pretty much your list there. Except, except Pinkney. Yeah, Pinkney would be yeah. on my list. Uh, and, uh, and another, uh, I'll give an honor, uh, honorable an honorable mention to James Pinkney. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who, uh, who was a hell of a quarterback and uh, 
was glad to see him at least his final season us have some success and take us to a bowl game in 06 and had a nice win over UVA that year. And so uh, I know you were upset about that being a Virginia native. But uh, we uh, I'm not from Virginia. Why do you think I'm from Virginia? <laughs> you said that I was. I am not from Virginia. Don't I put know that you're on not from Virginia. Virginia. Nothing against. Nothing against. You're so far north. You're so far north. You might as well be. Ah, oh, jeez, dude. Come on. Now. I'm a proud North Carolinian. Yes, sir. I know it. I represent the two five two. Um, two five two. That's right. That's right. Well, Steve, you got anything else? Or can we wrap this thing up? We can wrap it up, you know, just hoping that uh hoping that this weather will hold off or something that we can get this this game in Friday night and uh it's it's just been a it's it's been a dramatic week, I'll put it that way. But uh yeah, did something I hadn't done in a long time today. I took my daughter fishing today and I hadn't done this. I had been fishing in years and we had a great time. I I know people don't want to hear about that. You catch I, anything? Yeah, I, I actually we caught we uh, we went to a a small pond that uh, one of my dad's friends has and caught a caught a nice sized bass. But you know we we threw them all back in. We'll go back again, I'm sure. Hey, you know, Steve, you know how lucky you are, man. There, there's not that many people that can say they took their what? What is your daughter? Nineteen. Nineteen um, years old. Yeah, their nineteen year old daughter will still go fishing with them. So uh, you're hey, lucky yo, she there. loves fish. I mean, you think about it. I got a 19 year old daughter that, that goes to an ECU football game with me and goes fishing with yeah. me. And, uh, you know, you, I, I said about your daughter to my wife after we met her, uh, you know, you're, you're about what your daughter, your daughter's a very pretty young lady, but I said she was clearly raised a tomboy. You could just tell by her personality. Well, I appreciate that. And she, she is definitely, uh, not saying her coach's mind, but she's definitely, definitely one of a kind. And, uh, she is, she's a good girl. I can't, I have no complaints about her at all. Yeah, no, no doubt. She, uh, so don't she start me. now. Don't start now. <laughs> she, she seems like a good kid. She um, is. All right, Stevie. Uh, Bubba, I don't want to promote it. Are, are we having the inside slant tomorrow night? I, 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 need, right. I need confirmation if we're having the inside slant or not. Here we go. Let's see. Let's, see, let's, let's see if we get the confirmation. Do, 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 do. Yeah, no. Okay. Hold on. We we may or may not have the inside slant tomorrow night. Two, I tell you what, just tune Hold in up. today. Wait, wait, to be wait. decided. To be decided. To be decided. All right. So tune in tomorrow night at eight o'clock, and we may or may not have the inside slant. Just 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 wait and see. Just just tune in, and uh, I tell you what, if we don't have the inside slant, watch some archives. Listen to some archives. That's right. Watch you this know. again. And you know what? And for those of us that uh that, that watch us on YouTube and Facebook. If you ever just want to listen to anything you missed or go back and listen to something, we are available anywhere you can find podcasts. Yeah. So don't forget about that. I think everybody, you know, we've come so accustomed to our live feeds on YouTube and Facebook. Well, we are available on all podcast platforms. And uh, yeah. if you're listening to us on a podcast, you already know that. But, um, what anyway. is your check down if you don't have the slant? Craig just said his asking, what is our check down if you don't have the slant? Uh, I guess he just told you. Yeah, I mean, check down archives. To a Go back and listen to old episodes. That's right. Uh, just, just the archives, or, or watch the uh, the Coastal Carolina game on uh, on ESPN. Yeah, morning. who is who is the Thursday night game? Tomorrow? Coastal Carolina, Georgia State should be a pretty good game, right. actually. Yeah, and the NFL is Giants and 49ers. Okay. How about right. Nick Chubb though? Did you see that? I don't watch NFL. Oh, you didn't see that he got he got hurt. No, I don't watch NFL. Okay, I didn't know if you saw it. Oh, that was gruesome. He's no. probably done. 
It's the same same leg that he hurt at, at Georgia too. Oh, I'll uh, I'll see. I actually have a morbid fascination with watching. Well, I've, I'll tell you what ESPN did. This is this. There was a Monday night game against the Steelers. They would not show the replay. I hate that because. It, but here's the thing, and somebody mentioned it on social media. The whole time he was down, you could hear him hollering. And I, they were wow. like, "Don't show the replay. Cut the audio on the field, though, because he was he was in." Tremendous pain. I mean, and you see, if you see it, you'll know what you'll see why. Yeah, I, 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 I will watch things like that and literally scream while I'm watching them. Um, I've broken my ankle. I've had I've I've had my kneecap pop out of place and had to put it back in manually. Um, so I, I've done all kinds of stuff to my legs. So when I see it, I know how it feels and yeah. I start freaking out, but I cannot look away. Yeah, when you see this, you if he, I'll tell you. If he comes back from this, I will be shocked. Wow, that's what I've said. Uh, sorry to hear that. I hate that's, it. Uh, I mean, he's, he plays for Cleveland, but I, Nick Chubb. You know, I've always liked Nick Chubb at Georgia. Uh, you know, he, him coming back from that that gruesome injury, injury at Georgia and being one of the best running backs in the NFL right now, and then to have this happen, I I really hate it for him. No, that's that's definitely a bad thing. So, good good luck to to Nick. Maybe uh, maybe we'll. Be able to recuperate again from from another uh, bad leg injury. Um, so, I uh, like Steve. You didn't say it was a leg injury. I'm just assuming. Um, yeah, it was a leg injury. It was definitely a leg injury. Okay. Well, Steve, we'll wrap this thing up. Uh, I would advise everybody stay tuned to the weather and uh, social yeah. media for any changes as of right now. Everything is on and scheduled. So, uh, you know, plan on be there tailgate, bring your rain gear, and if something changes, obviously <laughs> it, it'll be on social media. Um, so for Stevie Fly, Doug Martin, and Bubba Rosenbaum producing, I am Kyle Barber, and you have been listening and watching just another sports podcast here on the Sports Objective Network. Good night, everybody, and go Pirates. See you.